Hey everyone, your favorite drunken podcast host here, Caleb James. Today we have a delightful discussion with Miette Gillette. Miette runs Whiskey Tit, a small independent publisher of avant-garde, genre-bending, and unrelenting literary experiments, both in full-length print form and as an online journal. Uh, I just wanted to jump in here real quick to let you know that uh, we talked with Miette remotely, and the audio cuts out a little bit here and there and gets a little robotic. But all in all, I think you will really enjoy this conversation. We had a blast talking with her and uh, got a lot of useful information, too. So enjoy. are listening to the drunken pen writing podcast i'm your host caleb james with me today spencer the lancaster linguist church oh, All right. fancy. uh and we have a special guest today publisher and editor of whiskey tit books i guess miet gillette i still want to say gillette <laughs> miet gillette gillette sounds just as nice gillette can be like your nickname like you gave to spencer gillette almost, <laughs> gillette almost like floats on the water yeah. you know it's like delicate gillette sounds I you know hard and american <laughs> It's okay. I will take razors or I will take French royalty. Whatever you choose any given day. It's fine. Because <laughs> you can't have both. <laughs> you can't have, yeah. Do the French use razors? Not as often. I don't think so. Some do. There's a lot of armpit hair. Sorry, I wanted to ask about armpit hair on the French and how you know this. If this is, fa- I don't want to disseminate fake news into the internet. So I want to know if this is, uh, I am, if this is verified fact. I am going off of art books from yeah. the 70s and everyone was kind of hairy in the 70s. Oh, yeah. So that is probably a terrible Although stereotype. Outdated. Yeah. Yeah. Armpits are not the first place I would think when I think about 70s body. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. A 70s body. I wasn't around in the 70s, so yeah. I can't really judge. I'm an 80s baby. Late 80s. Yeah. Shouldn't be judging bodies anyway, Spencer. You need to stop doing that. I'm an Ooh. asshole. Yeah, it's very harsh. So anyway, we thank you for coming on. Uh, you are in a car under the Brooklyn Bridge. You're not under the Brooklyn Bridge, but you are in Brooklyn, I believe. If anybody's I'm wondering why there's an ambiance in the background or gunshots or anything, it could be that. Which that's another stereotype. I, I've never been to Brooklyn either, so I don't know if it's a violent area anymore. It's gentrified. It's very hairy here. Lots of hairy people, but like very well coiffed hair. Super groomed. <laughs> Lots of curls and mustache wax. Yeah. Indeed. So, a Whiskey Tit is a book publisher, but it's also a separate journal as well. Yeah, we have three kind of major arms of our publishing operation. We have the print press, which I run, which uh, has been around for about nine years. We mostly publish like avant-garde, experimental, kind of cross-genre, absurdist stuff. We do, I have a pretty kind of broad appreciation for what I consider experimental. So we don't conform to like the very definition of experimental fiction, which itself has like become codified. We really like uh, being kind of outliers in that way. And then we also have an online journal where we do like uh, short fiction, creative nonfiction and poetry. And just right now we are launching heavy print journal that's about 150 pages, comes out quarterly called a Commonwealth Journal, which is being edited by Hank Jost, who's a brilliant writer in his own. So I manage the print press, and then I have others in those other like ecosystems. And that's what we're all about. We've been around, like I said, for about nine years, and I think I have just published our 46th title. Jeez. Wow. Well, before we get into the titles and everything like that, I'm really interested because I actually read, I think it was an interview you did in 
Take magazine in like 2016 mm. or something. And yeah, you, yeah. you briefly discussed the origin of the title Whiskey Tit and how it came about. And it was not at all what I thought. For some reason, I thought it was birds. But then Spencer oh. pointed out to me earlier that the W logo in Whiskey Tit has nipples. So yeah. it's boobs. It's and I was like, oh, that's boobs. awesome. It's boobs. It's boobs. I get so excited anytime people make that connection. Uh, <laughs> Because I have uh, the imagination of a 12-year-old boy, apparently. But yeah, it's a set of boobs. Although, I will say, uh, I like that some people mistake it for the bird because I do feel like there's a child, there's like a children's imprint coming out of this at some point. (laughs) (laughs) So the name origin story is kind of similar to the origin of the press, actually. Um, I I had just had a child, and I did not want to be one of those parents who stops doing what they find passion you know what like gives them passion and joy for the sake of like giving my entire identity over to my child i was very very hypersensitive to this i've seen lots of people do it especially mothers so soon after having my child i sat down to try and write for the first time and i am someone who really needs like the little crutch of a small little sniff of whiskey next to me while i'm writing but i also i i my child was an ardent and like deeply always hungry nurser she loved to breastfeed like it soothed her she was good at it she really she was a hungry baby and she really liked to latch onto those tits so i had a problem because i won (laughs) everything for her but also didn't want to be like one of those awful parents who like got my baby drunk um (laughs) i got online and you know like the internet you know the signal to noise ratio for like quality content tit is Kind of out of control, but if you really look deeply enough, you can kind of find any information you want. So I went down this weird rabbit hole and I actually found this calculator that tells you if you're a nursing parent, you punch in like what you want to drink, how soon between drinking it and feeding you anticipate, what your child's body weight is, a couple of other variables, and it'll it'll spit right back out. You can have two ounces of whiskey an hour before you feed your kid. Like it was myself. It was beautiful. And it also made me feel wildly less alone in the world because like someone else had had this very same problem and like actually was like geeky enough to like put it into a calculator and put it online. For- so I became a very ardent drinker of two ounces of whiskey about 45 minutes before feeding my baby at night. And that made me able to like balance being a writer and being a mother. And then that parlayed into being a publisher because there are all these like metaphors around like the <laughs> role of mothering these projects, right? Also, like I said, I have like the emotional maturity sometimes of a 12-year-old boy. So the name is funny. Alliterative, like those nice little E's and the nice tit logos, like everything about it is, I still <laughs> find people about it all these years later. It's like, it feels like one of my best like moments of writing, like very clever thing that I wrote that I'm like patting myself on the back for years later. So that's the origin of the name of Whiskey Tit. It is amazing. The, for one, just that you could calculate that. Like, that's a thing yeah. that's out there in the world now is like, this is the safe level. Science. Science has come through again. <laughs> there, Who said science and writers don't get along? I, I... I'll i take science and math any right and left brain <laughs> things, including how to drink while breastfeeding. I also like how your idea of, you know, not wanting to give up just because you're a parent, like the things you like, like, you know, having a little whiskey here and there also extends to writing and your passion for writing because you don't want to give that up either. But when you're a new parent, 
that's usually one of the first things that goes for the people we've spoken to over the years. It's like, oh, we can't write anymore because we just don't have the time or the focus or anything like that. I, the, you know, the time has been the time has been hard. And part of my transition to publishing, you know, I still write. But honestly, some writers, myself included, really do our best work when we have like six or seven uninterrupted hours to just go crazy. And you actually just can't find that often as a new parent. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't want to give that up entirely. Like I said, I was super sensitive to it. So part of the transition to publishing for me was to be able to stay connected to brilliant writing and help get it into the world, even if it wasn't writing that I was doing myself. And now, you know, like it's 10 years later, my child is like totally dependent. <laughs> she doesn't need my tits or my body most of the time. <laughs> own life. She can read her own books. And so I can just, you know, happily sit back down, work on some projects. And then at night after everybody's gone to bed, pick up as much whiskey as I'd like and write for as long as I'd like, mm. like so come full circle with it. That's a whole new meaning to free the nipple, too. Yeah. It's like, no more childbearing <laughs> years. You do your own thing, and I'm going to drink whiskey and write all night and have a good time. That sounds <laughs> awesome. Uh, That's right. Well, before you had your boobs free, were you able, like, how much time did you have to sacrifice? Obviously, for the writing aspect, you had to sacrifice uh a lot of the time that you'd use for writing, but just reading manuscripts and stuff, because I'd imagine that's a big part of your job. It's a fair chunk of time. And I am not independently wealthy, nor am I a non-for-profit who gets tons of grant money. So I'm actually doing this largely on my own dime. And it does take up time. When I got started, manuscripts started to filter in. I was very ambitious. I told myself I was going to read everyone and respond accordingly. And you soon realize that half of what's submitted to you is submitted to everybody. They don't read your mission statement. Half of it is completely inappropriate. Maybe it's the wrong format. I'm getting film scripts, whatever. So I quickly learned to like speed read those first few pages and make sure that what was actually being sent to me was uh, was worth was worth reading. I still I very much want to be considerate of people when they trust me with their projects, and so I still spend way too much time reading manuscripts. But there's joy in it. There's delight in it. I you know I believe very firmly that. Once we lose our ability to tell each other stories and connect with each other through the arts, then we're left with Elon Musk and Donald Trump screaming yeah. into the ether. Like, culture, like I feel, I, I and I feel like something of a cult leader when I when I talk like this. So you'll have to pardon me, but I actually feel very strongly that like we are no greater than the culture that we're producing, um, and that very much includes our literature. And I think that there is clearly some kind of hunger for deep and meaningful and like wackadoodle literature that it's just like it, that it's completely new and luckily we have enough weirdos out there trying to make it so yeah uh, <laughs> so it feels it feels really good to be able to help bring some of that into the world well that actually touches on a question i was going to ask later but we'll jump around here since you brought up just the passion of writing and you know the weirdos which is where some of the best work comes from as a publisher because at, well for me as someone who has uh, done submissions and we used to have drunken pen writing as a literary journal online for many years we shut that down last year but i would do a lot of submissions like i'd read a lot of submissions and stuff but luckily it was before ai came into the picture so i'm wondering how has ai affected submissions because i know most places have and strictly in their guidelines no ai work but is it difficult to tell because if somebody has the ai write the story for them and then just add their own wacky bits and change it about, how would you really know? Yeah, I've played with some of the generative AI tools a little bit, not for fiction work, but for some other, just to see what it can do. And I certainly heard some professors and academics have problems discerning whether or not an AI has written an essay. The AI is actually not very creative, in my opinion. 
I don't know, like an AI might be able to produce a fairly decent piece of like midwit, midlist genre fiction. It could probably write romance pretty well, but I don't think it can write deeply literary. I, I think that I am a good arbiter of like when people are involved and where there's voice and story. I don't think like maybe AI will get there, but I don't think it's to the point where it can write the kind of stuff that I'm looking for. I would probably, I, I should hope that I would reject any piece that came in that was written in AI and let's start the experiment and good because like everybody's trying to do that experimentally and those experiments haven't been very interesting to me. Well, as of now, AI is just an amalgamation of what already exists, so it can't be original. So especially a publication like yours that is accepting out there, avant-garde, you know, postmodern type of work, it's very hard for AI to write that. If you want AI to write, you know, just some, like you said, romance or maybe a cozy mystery, it could probably do that enough that with the writers tweaking, it could be passable for a convenience store shelf or something. But even so, my fear would just be that at some point, the AI gets advanced enough that you get submissions. You're like, ooh, this is really good. And it turns out somebody didn't actually write it. Yeah. I mean, if if and when AI becomes that good, becomes that uh, clever, then maybe we have other work that we need to do. But as of now, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see it getting there for quite a while. We'll see. Well, going just back to the avant-garde stuff, because I just love that you publish things that are out there and are different. Because one of my struggles over the last year, I've been submitting a lot of short stories. You could name almost any publication I've probably submitted to by now. I mean, I've had a few acceptances, but I think I'm up to like 73 rejections. My goal is 100 for the year, so I'm getting there. But right. a lot of the stuff that these places take, when you read these journals, and I subscribe to a bunch of different, like, you know, New England Review, American Short Stories, things like this that are very established, almost every story in there reads the same to me. Like, some of them are okay, but some are really boring, but they all read like they were written in the same style and formatting and paragraph layout. Like, it was a creative writing class that everyone took, and just that's how they're writing. And I just, I can't deal with that. <laughs> like, I don't want to yeah. write like that. I don't want to submit work like that. So it's very nice and fresh that there is uh, some publications like yours out there that actually take work that's different and want to expose the unique culture that really should be the forefront of writing, you know, the experimental, something that's different because we don't have that anymore, really. Everyone kind of copies each other with TikTok and everything. Everything's the same and it gets bland. I think that there's very much a homogenization going on within American letters. And I think that that's going on across the arts, right? And it's largely because these things are driven by shareholders and profits, right? Like, the, like increasingly. So you have streaming services where the algorithms are looking at like how they're going to keep you in Netflixing and chilling for hours. You have people reading on books on the Kindle where Kindle is reporting back to the big publishers how far people are reading within their books before they drop out. And people are making creative decisions based on that, which is total horseshit. Like we should not be doing that as artists. Like we should not be thinking about that. Yes, we all need to survive. And that involves, you know, like shaking the can and making a little money. But if we're making art for the sake of commodification of that art, then actually we like, you know, like we might as well go work in accounting. Yeah. Like I, I'm glad to host your accounting podcast. But in the meantime, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, so, so I got started I, when I decided to publish the first book. It was it was the book of a friend of mine, which I thought was brilliant, but which was so hard to classify. He got 
hundreds. He was very much in the hundreds of rejections when I realized that we could just do it ourselves and that I could just do it for him. And that book was, that book is, is beautiful. It remains one of the best things I've ever published. It's called Gaha, Babes of the Abyss. And it's, it's very seedy and very cool, but the high concept of it involves like teenage performative incestuous lesbians who are Martian princesses, right? Like it's <laughs> wild and way out there and nobody would touch it despite how beautiful it is and despite thematically what it was doing and despite what it was doing with language. And you walk into any independent bookshop, which like they're very cute with all of their like Wes Anderson inspired decor, but a lot of them, frankly, don't have a selection that's that different than an airport bookshop. And I hate to say that because I love independent bookshops and I will always support them, but like they need to be carrying cool, weird, small press titles. They don't need to be carrying the big five. There are plenty of people publishing big, uh, you know, selling big five books, you know? So yes. So I, I, I think that's where the exciting part of literature happens. And I also think after having done this for a while that I'm that I'm not alone in this there are a lot of publishers doing like really cool work and they're doing it on a shoestring it's usually one or a couple of people doing it you know in their basements or in the evening or like as they're nursing their children or whatever actually I went from thinking wow this is a shit time for American letters to like this is a really cool revolutionary time for publishing if people are willing to take some risks I think keep going you'll you'll probably hit 100 rejections Maybe not by the end of the year, but, you know, keep working. You'll find the right people. There, there are lots out there that are championing, championing this kind of work. Well, once the work that's mainstream, and you, I mean, you even see this in movies and television, once everything becomes very similar, and even if it's not mediocre work, but it's just work that, I watched this movie and then I went next week to watch a different movie and I like I did they were both the same to me. Like once you get to that point, it's just the pendulum's gonna swing the other way and you're gonna get the experimental stuff and you're always gonna have this big swing. It happened in the sixties, or well, even before that happened with the postmodernist sixties, you had it in the nineties. So I'm hoping that they're like you said, that we'll have some kind of resurgence of that and people are gonna want different things. And maybe you go to the airport and you actually see you know, more Ulysses type of work versus whatever the James Patterson book of the week is like. And I think it's important that people read these things that are not only challenging and can change their worldviews, but change how they think about things. Because that's, right. that's what a lot of absurdist literature and a lot of work like this does is it changes how you think about the world. And when everyone's thinking the same, you want to be the one on the outside because that's where it's cool to be. I mean, especially looking at like what the where the baseline is in the world today like if you're thinking anywhere near what's going on today is normal then you probably like need to go check yourself in somewhere like it's like or like go read a good book well like one of the weirdest compliments i got recently was i've been shopping this absurdist story i have around and it's a little bit on the longer side it's uh, almost eight thousand words so that's usually above most places guidelines so i'm selective where i've been uh, submitting it but the missouri review which is a pretty big publisher or a uh, journal they read it and they liked it and they thought it was very imaginative because you know absurdist story is funny and they liked it but <laughs> they don't publish stuff like that is basically what they told right. me and i was like why can't you though like you could publish right. whatever you want why can't you even if i'm reading one of these journals or literary magazines or like the paris review or something why can't i have at least one story in there that's different from the other ones why is it so bad to have something that doesn't fit the mold you just publish something that's good yeah something original yeah. and fun that's gonna be the one that's gonna stick out honestly if all the other ones are similar i couldn't agree more i mean i think these are the folks that can afford to take a chance on a newer or unestablished writer and they're the people frankly who 
you know, are going to give somebody a potentially life-changing break in their work. Like, if they like the story and they realize that it has value and merit, like, why exclude it on those bases? Like, and I very much have a set of, like, you know, like, literary criteria that I use when I'm, like, thinking about what to publish, but I'm also willing to have my mind change sometimes, right? Like, like we grow and evolve as humans, and that should be reflected in the literature. And I think, like, if you're dealing with, like, the institution of the Paris Review, um, yeah. you know, like... <laughs> Maybe there's only so far you can go with that. But I do think that it's unfortunate. And I do wish, you know, like, I feel like they have access and they have access to help all of us. Right. Like, there's no like, why isn't the Paris Review, like, insisting that Whiskey Tit be like pulled on the show? Like, I feel like the people, the people with access and with power should really be on the should be put on the hook for helping those of us who are taking the risks in the field, I think. But that's another that's another lecture for another day. I think it's a gatekeeping issue because, like you said, it's an institution. You know, you look at the New Yorker, the Paris Review, the Dublin Review, any of these big time journals where if you submit to them, you won't even hear back because they get so many submissions. For writers, it's a resume point. They don't even care about the publication necessarily because I know a lot of people that don't read those because they're kind of boring. They're kind of drab. Like most things, once you get so popular, you don't want to offend the majority. So you have to focus on pleasing everyone. And then that's when you, you know, don't have experimental things or anything like that. So like a Paris review, they're not going to take a chance on even promoting something that goes against what their, you know, quote unquote guidelines are for what good fiction is. Because then if they, let's say whiskey tit, they promote whiskey tit, whiskey tit blows up to a Paris review level. And then all of a sudden people are like, well, why would we read the Paris review when we have something completely different? That's great. I think that's true. The other uh, risk there is like whiskey tit becomes so successful that suddenly I have to wear like jackets, yeah. smoky elbow patches, and I'm a you know stodgy old white guy with a big white beard. You become the institution. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's a dream. We'll we'll yeah. all get there. And just to be fair for anybody listening, I don't know anybody at the Paris Review. I don't talk to the editors at Paris Review. I don't even I, have, I read a few volumes of the Paris Review, so I can't actually judge what they put out every issue. I'm not that deep into it, so I'm just using I, them as example because they're one of the top ones. I know some freelancers who work with the Paris Review, and I like them, and they're all very talented, and they feel very lucky to be involved with the institution. The only other uh, anecdote that I have about the Paris you is um, the first time I went to the AWP conference as an exhibitor was in uh, 2020 in San Antonio, which happened about like three days before the world shut down. And so about 60% of the vendors just didn't show up that year. And because we're whiskey tit, and again, like we participate in AWP, we know them very well. It's an institution. So because we're whiskey tit, we're kind of put in the nosebleed section every time. But in 2020, the Paris Reviews table was right up in front, center row, front and center, and they didn't come. So we took over their booth, nice. out Paris Review, and we wrote Whiskey Tit over it. And we got so much great business from people who came to talk to the Paris Review, but ended up talking to us. So thank you, Paris Review, for not turning up oh. to AW2020. We made some money off you and uh, converted some of your uh, followers. Their void has caused a you know a vacuum a plethora a vacuum mm -hmm. in the literary scene at that convention thing but you know somebody's got to fill the power gap and might as well be whiskey tit they were great big shoes to step into and they didn't smell very good but we did it anyway <laughs> 
I li- I do like that a lot of places being an institution is only because they've been around so long. Yeah. It doesn't even have anything to do with the quality of work at some point. It's just, oh, you've been around for 50 years and you could put the date of when you started and people are like, oh, that's a, that's a good one. That's old. So if Whiskey Tit <laughs> just holds out for another 30 years, you could just, you know, get anybody probably. Well, we'll see how it goes. 30 years is a long time in publishing, but yeah, maybe we'll make it and then we'll be, we'll, we will be that person. Um, it would be great. I can't wait to be a gatekeeper. <laughs> For those who uh, may not be familiar, is there a certain, like, when it comes to the stuff that you publish, is it more just kind of like literary stuff, or do you, will you publish things in different genres, or do you have, is that probably like, I I imagine that's probably part of the guidelines when you submit? Yeah, I, I don't do a lot of straight genre fiction, and I don't do a lot of straight literary fiction, unless I can find a way in which it takes some other risks. So if you have a mystery novel that is written as like Homeric epic, that's, I'm cool with that. If you have like something that is like crazy genre bending and that doesn't like feel literary in terms of its language or rhythm, but is like, I don't know, I don't want to give a story because I don't want to out any writers or call them non-literary. But like, if it, if like, if it really plays with those tropes or like crushes them in some way, I'm all into it. If it is like hugely experimental, but not just for the sake of like fucking around and like letting a cat walk on your keyboard, but actually like bring like does that without compromising narrative or like the joy of reading. I dig the shit out of that. Like I love, like I said, I have a pretty wide uh, appreciation for what I consider literary experiments. Sometimes it's just like a really great 500 page novel that's told in the form of a novella. I have a couple of novellas, but which are mysteries to me. Because I, like it has to, you know, it has to be as concise as a short story, but as comprehensive and complex as a novel. And by God, as a writer, like that is fucking hard. And if you can pull that off, like I want to see those. Likewise, I have a one thousand page, four part, like world building, historic fiction, low tech noir, wild epic that I also that nobody is going to touch. Nobody wants to publish a thousand page book because honestly, nobody's going to want to read it. If it fits our con- like we we did, we don't sell millions of it. By- they find their audience. They find their people. So that's that's what we're all about. Well, it sounds like you're starting to touch on ergodic literature, the more experimental art styles. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you publish anything like that? Like, you know, like a House of Leaves for anybody who doesn't know what ergodic literature is, like weird formatting and, you know, kind of yeah. almost like an art book. Yeah, a couple. So Tarina Elizabeth Bell has a short story collection called Tell Me What You See. Every story is told in a different experimental format. So one is an erasure poem. One is a story that's told uh, largely in text messages. One uses, you know, has images that kind of fade in and out um, that, that, again, like are not done just this just for the sake of gimmickry. Like those are definitely like part of the cohesion of the narrative. But, you know, but I love that. Like I was all about this book. The book is deeply political. It's really meaningful to me as someone who's been in New York. Uh, Tarina also has a bunch of like, you know, she grew up in Kentucky and lives in New York City now. So there's a lot of like identity and like figuring out who you are on both sides of the spectrum with respect to like, you know, living in America today, which I love. There's another book called Not Safe for Work and SFW by David Scott Hay, uh, which is um, kind of a slipstream experimental um, horror that involves social media moderators. Uh, essentially, the, the plot is kind of uh, constructed around a couple of social media moderators whose job it is to watch the most horrible flagged stuff. And they take comfort and solace from 
watching these horrible things with like drugs and sex and jellyfish. And so there are um, some like conventions that go on on the page to like exemplify that a little. So yeah, so I, I don't shy away from those books. I mean, I'll tell you, they're hell to produce sometimes, um, but it's worth it. Yeah, the only downside to that kind of work, especially when it goes into the formatting and stuff, it has to take a lot of effort to put a lot of, you know, some of those together, especially, I'm trying to think, I can't remember the title, but I saw a book recently where every story is really, really strange and gross, and it's not even about the actual stories, though, like, the book is meant to be beat up, so it already comes, look, because it's a post-apocalyptic story, uh, or a set of stories, but the book itself is set to look like it's been burned and beat up. And then the fans, it was a great selling point because then people have to buy more of the book. You right. beat the shit out of the book. You light it on fire. You blow it up. You make it look like it's been in an mm. apocalypse. And uh, it that that goes into the art style just being beyond the actual art itself when you're incorporating the reader into it and making the book their own in that manner. But I tried to buy a copy of it. It was like $800 oh, on eBay geez. right now because th- that's a problem with a lot of those uh, books. I don't know if you guys at Whiskey Tid have had this issue, but some of these books, they're so hard to make and print and they are probably not, they're probably very cost prohibitive. So you can't keep making them. So you do one or two print runs and then it becomes one of those rare books that cost thousands of dollars. Yeah, I don't want I mean, we have not had any whiskey tit books aftermarket for thousands of dollars. We've certainly had a couple that have tried to be listed for that and then they just go nowhere. And I think that that's just wishful thinking on the part of some robots. Like, I don't think for some of that, I don't even think that there are humans behind it, I think. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that that style is cool. I think that art books are great. I am remiss for the for the 90s in New York City when you could go into most bookshops and cafes and find zines that had been printed out at Kinko's or FedEx or whatever it was called. And I think there's still a little bit, there, people are still doing that a little bit largely. That's a, an art form that has mostly gone online now. But, uh, you know, but I think anybody who's working in that medium deserves to be celebrated for it because it's so it's increasingly rare. You know, like you said, it's a great way of like connecting with your readership. Um, if you're asking them to destroy this book, that's that's pretty cool. One of the small pleasures I have in life is when I go to local bookstores or cafes, just in any city I'm in, and you see their local selection and you get some of those self-published kind of works that, I mean, sometimes they're very rough, but sometimes they're very unique. And it's somebody's just labor of love. Like you could just tell like, oh, this person did this all themselves and they put a lot of work. They didn't just pay, you know, whatever Amazon's thing is now, like to get published on demand. Like they actually did it themselves and put it together. And, you know, if you buy this on the off chance, if that book somehow got popular, blew up or if they did get a publisher to print it, uh, you would have that original cool copy. And even if you don't, it's just cool because you could reach out to that person. Like, hey, I really like what you did. It's very neat. I think so. I mean, I, you know, I, I am not, I am not a gatekeeper. And so I think however people choose to get their work out is great. If people are self-publishing, that's awesome. If they're designing their covers using Canva or some template from the internet, whatever, like I, you know, like if they can find their readership and yeah, especially when it's a cool local author, I live in a very small, I'm, I'm in the South Bronx, but I live in a very small town in Vermont. And when you go to a local shop and see like the cool, like I should, I should take that back. I have not found a whole lot of really cool, wild, crazy experiments with Vermont literature. A lot of the Vermont local literature that I see has to do with like loving the land and it's all very sweet and it's respectful in its own right, but it's not uh, what gets me off as a writer. But like, but that, that local stuff is sometimes the best stuff you're going to find. I mean, if I had nothing but time on my hands, 
I would like turn off my submittable and go look for writers in just that way. I think that there is like fantastic work waiting to be discovered on those shelves. Well, especially underprivileged writers who just don't have the means to get published or pay for submissions, because that's another thing. You talk about gatekeeping, but some people don't have the money to submit a lot. Uh, because a lot right. of these places you have to pay. And I mean, with Submittable, there's a cost to the publisher. So obviously, if they have like a $3 fee, you know, that evens out. Yeah, a lot of these people, they don't have the means, though, to really get their work out there. They can't even do a convention circuit. I, I think that th I think that's right. Um, so I the, at Whiskey Tate, we don't charge submission fees other than the Commonwealth Journal that Hank writes. He has a, you know, a recommended $5 fee. And if you pay that, he will, you know, read your stuff and critique it very carefully. And he is a, you know, like, it's well worth your five bucks for that. I, you know, I don't take them. I don't a fee on my, um, on the print press. Although, you know, what that often means is like, I need more time mm -hmm. uh, to around any kind of feedback. Um, but even still, I mean, you're entirely right. Like the, the people who uh, control the internet can put together a cover letter, can submit work that is already polished and already workshopped tend to be the people with a little bit of privilege to have gone through that process. So, you know, you really, you have to kind of look a little deeper or be willing as a publisher to accept that there's work that you, you know, that, that, that still needs work, but that it's like just as meaningful and you have to find a way to support that even though it clearly has not been workshopped or has not been through a program or, you know, like they didn't have money to find an editor. And I think that was definitely a growing pain that I had. Like I would find all these brilliant manuscripts that were like ready to go. And that was great. And then after a couple of years, I had a moment of reflection realizing like I, I had passed up on some pretty awesome stuff because I didn't have the means or the bandwidth or the money to actually like invest the time into that work when that is oftentimes the work that's like even better. So we're getting there. We're doing some awesome work in that front. And uh, we're, we're all like I said, I'm, you know, I'm I'm Whiskey Ted is just me and I'm one person. And as such, I'm deeply flawed because I'm also a writer. So I'm pretty fucked up myself so we're all learning here together in our own fucked up writer ways <laughs> you know just going with like the submissions and paying for them and we are all fucked up i could agree oh, that's yeah. one thing among creatives the usually the best writers comedians actors even they're, they're fucked up people or they yeah. had hard childhoods or, like there's always something there that makes i don't know like if you have somebody that just like, grew up with a great life usually they're just bland people well that's like that one comedian i forget I, that's probably been a couple but that the one joke with like michael jackson of like you know with his you know dad beating him too hard be you know beating him you gotta that, that, gotta beat him enough so he becomes a great singer you beat him a little <laughs> too much and he starts becoming diddling kids like yeah. you know like that's rough yeah, I mean, there is something that compels us to do this work instead of like working in an office building or sweeping up a cafeteria or whatever it else it is that people do with their free, you know, like Netflixing and chill, like whatever it is that people are doing with their professional lives or with their like passion in their free time, you know, like there's something that makes us want to do this stuff. And that is, I, I, I think it's beautiful. I think it reflects, I think it has, there's hope that like not everybody wants to do the same things that some of us in the middle of the night, like would rather be, you know, like furious trying to like get some words on the page or uh, share a story or something. Well, if I could be as douchey as possible, I uh, I really do believe that writing is a form of magic because you read something from like Dostoevsky, you're getting yeah. a guy who's been long dead in a dip from a different country if you're not Russian mm -hmm. and his words and his ideas go into your brain, create pictures, and then all of a sudden you might be finding that you're agreeing with his ideology and it becomes your ideology. I just think that's really cool because even like painting, it's, you know, not quite there 
that's a you know that's a different kind of method of expressing yourself and you can make people feel things with paintings but it's not this like writing really gets into your head literally because you you know I think that's one of the most intimate things you could do is read somebody's thoughts. Right. Um. Anyway, going back to just the submissions real quick. One of the things that I find helps just, just for anyone who's listening, who's an aspiring writer. If you are struggling with submit like the submission fees, if you can manage it, a budget really helps. Uh, I This year I started focusing more on contests and stuff. And that is hard because I've submitted to so many $10, $20, even $30 contests. And it's, a lot of times you don't even hear back. Like they don't just don't reply. Like uh, you, you know, they take your money. They apparently read your story, yeah. but they do nothing. You don't even get the generic rejection because they probably get so many uh, submissions. But do you find that not having a submission fee sends way more submissions your your way than if you had that fee? Is you know we talk about gatekeeping, but it is kind of a form of gatekeeping. But it also would it would help you out in that it limits the amount of submissions you might be getting normally. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think people would be more judicious about what they submitted to me if they had to whip out their credit card before doing so. Like I, I think I might have said um, earlier, I have gotten a little bit better about like regulating myself and about uh, about not giving ample time to those folks who are clearly just like spending all day trawling poets and writers or whatever those directory sites are looking for everywhere to submit to. Um, it's pretty clear pretty early when someone didn't bother reading my submissions guidelines. So yes, I think those people who didn't bother reading my guidelines and are just submitting everywhere probably get a little bit less of that, but I probably also missed some of the best writing. So it's a compromise. It has become a challenge. I mean, during the pandemic, everybody thought they had a fucking novel in them. And like, yeah. like I'm sorry, there are many people, like God bless everybody who's ever tried to write a novel. It is so difficult, but honestly, like, I know a lot of people were unemployed and had a lot of free time and a lot of big thoughts, but that just doesn't make everybody a writer. And I, that like, if I can be so douchey to say that, then I just did. <laughs> so, so I, uh, you know, I got way more submissions than I knew what to do with and actually had to like shut, shut down the submissions engine for a while to try and catch up. I missed a couple. I pissed a couple of people off who like really thought that they deserved a shot, but we all got through it. <laughs> and yeah, I, so, so yes, there is uh, something to be said for for a paywall, right? For just like putting that in place, even if it's nominal. But I haven't I haven't needed to go there yet. Maybe someday. Well, one of my small joys when I was running the DPW website, we always our biggest month was always October because we would do all the Halloween stories and stuff. So that was our main open submission period, and then we would have like summer sometimes or spring, but mainly October was our our month. And I would get sometimes three to 400 submissions during that month alone, not even counting the ones when I actually put the call out in like August or, you know, July. And this, the only thing that made it bearable was the fact that no matter how explicit the submission guidelines were, no matter how, you know, bold faced and big, I made the font, people would not follow the submission guidelines for absolutely no reason and they would have the worst cover letter of just like, here's my story. And then they would be over the word count and everything. And I just delete, rejected. Yeah. Like, I don't think, yeah. you because know, at some point you don't have to respond to those. It's like, you're not going to even have the respect to follow the submission guidelines. Because I'm very anal about that when I submit to places. I'm like checking it 50,000 mm -hmm. times. So right. if you can't do that, like, you're not serious about writing, in my opinion. 
Right. How was how was that submit? Like, were you able to keep up with that reading just by deleting and not submitting to? Uh, it was tough because one, we didn't use submittable. It was just email, which I thought would limit the submissions because a lot of people go through submittable because they could see when they're getting the stuff. But it was mainly just like I would take the month off. Other than the podcast, I wouldn't do my own personal writing too much. Like I would make sure whatever stories I wanted published on the site beforehand that I wrote would be done months ahead of time. And I would just take the month off and probably read five to 10 stories a day or whatever it was. And towards the last couple of years, like we cut down so much on what we were posting on the site anyway, also led to us shutting down. It's just didn't have time for it anymore because we couldn't, it was, that's the hard thing. I'm sure you experienced this. It's hard to write your own work and then also run something that is fo so focused on other people's work. And we were really about the indie community and uh, getting people who don't have their voices you know, established yet to give them preferential treatment over somebody who would submit and is like, oh, I have 10 books and I'm a best selling. It's like, okay, like we might publish you on the merits that the story's good, but you know, I'm going to try to choose the people who should get their voices heard first. But anyway, just like the submissions were hard to keep up with, but like just being able to delete a lot of them just from the guidelines not being followed. And like you, I would have to speed, speed read a little bit, you know. Usually our cutoff, we would have the flash fiction, which I loved because those mm -hmm. were so easy to read. The poetry I loved because those are very fast to read. But, the, you know, we had some longer stories that like up to 5,000 words. It's like that gets a little bit iffy because sometimes you speed read, but you're like, wait, this is kind of good. Yeah, what happened? But there's a lot of typos. And then I would actually send them the personal message. And like, if you fix this and you work on it and submit it again, I will, even if it's not for Halloween, I'm, you know, we've done that where we would publish in November, even December. It's like, hey, it's not going to be for the Halloween issue or whatever, but we will definitely publish your work later if you fix it. Because, I, you know, I believe in people and I believe a lot of people who are just getting into writing or even if they've been submitting for a while, but they don't have their voice yet. They need that positive influence to say, hey, you're good. You're just not as good as you can be. You just need, you know, not necessarily training, but a lot of people, they... They might not know. They might not know that that like. Well, like us, a lot of people are autodidacts, like the, in the writing community, where we study and learn how to write just on our own. Mm -hmm. Like not everyone is, you know, they don't go to university or they didn't take creative writing classes. They just learn because they write what they like to read. So I find giving those people a little bit of inspiration and some guidance did go a long way. And we still we had people. They, uh, which I loved, they sent me pictures of their story, their first story published. They printed it out and they had it on their wall or they gave it a gift to like, like their husband gave them, they gifted them their story printed out and, you know, framed. And then a lot of those people still send me stuff as like free books and stuff because they're mm. doing very well now. And they were just so happy that we gave them their first writing credit. And I love that. That's one thing I do miss about running DPW. Yeah. Uh, was that we don't get to uh, help those kind of people anymore. That's that's amazing. That's that's very sweet. And I do I do to that point think that part of what we're doing, a lot of what we're doing is very fun and very wild. And it's great to like have this goofy community and to be able to go to places and you know, really like really like punk out on some of this awesome writing. A lot of what we do gets really disappointing. You know, you get a print run back that's fucked up or you like send something to the press with a mistake or sales numbers don't like nobody ever sells as many books as they really think that they're like. It's like the business of disappointment, the business of like total adrenaline rush and joy. And then at the same time, there is this bit where like 
you are championing the work of new people and actually making some dreams come true in some like meaningful way in people's life. And that's important and cool. Like that's like a cool, like heart, little heartbeat of what we do as well. So I think it's, I think it's amazing that you, when you, when anybody spends time to acknowledge that that is actually part of what we're doing as well. That's cool. I still have the, you know, like the, the proof from the first book that I published. It's all like loose, like loose pages and marked up full of mistakes. Like, it's like, I'll never let that go. Like, that's important. Well, I felt just the responsibility when I was just doing these stories. I imagine for you, when you read a submission for somebody's book who can't get it published anywhere just because it's so different and you can see the potential in it or maybe it's already ready, like it's good enough that it could be printed or published and you have the responsibility of saying, hey, you are actually good enough. Like you should pursue this more. And, you know, even if you didn't accept the work for whatever reason, you could still be like, hey, you're on the right track. That could be kind of heavy because when you get so many submissions and you get bogged down, you almost it, it gets to the point like when we see bad news so often that no matter how big a tragedy is, unless it's really an outlier, you just kind of go, OK, like you just OK. So you get all these submissions. Eventually, you're just going to be like, all right, uh, you know, if it's unless it's really good, it just kind of whatever like you don't really have an opinion on it anymore and that's like a tough thing because i think that just happens it's almost like burnout that probably happens to anybody in the publishing industry i think that that's right i think that's entirely right and yeah I, some of the best submissions that have come my way have been rejected by uh, other presses that are doing similar work to me um but it's adjacent work we're not working in exactly the same vision so someone you know will submit to another press whose guidelines are like just enough off like they want just a tad bit more like formal experiment um, and they'll be sent my way and they'll be perfect for the press and vice versa. Like I said, there are actually like a lot of us doing this work and we're all, you know, we all have our own approach and we're all a little bit different. Um, so there's definitely a circle of, uh, you know, of like kindred spirits kind of working in similar spaces where we can help place some of this stuff, which I think has been wildly helpful for a lot for a lot of people as we try and build this community. Well, how often do you get work that is, even if it's well-written, it's just too over the top even for you guys? Because I remember, like, the first time, like, we got, like, tentacle porn stuff yeah. sent to us. It was like, oh, my God. It's like, I'm going to keep reading this, but like, we can't publish this. Like, even if we would want to, like, our audience isn't geared towards that kind of stuff. But have you gotten anything, like, weird and out of the box like that where you couldn't even touch it, really? Well, uh, yes, and I touched it anyway. Um, <laughs> so I have this, there's an amazing... Uh, book that is like bizarro parody but the parody is so deep because bizarro is so weird that when you're parodying bizarro it's just more bizarro it's just it's like bizarro word right so like you don't really know that the parody is there but it's it's hugely literate it's written under an alias the alias is it is zygote and that is because the the writer is a very well-known philosopher of certain branches of science fiction and so i can't uh you know i, I don't want to out the writer by saying any more than that but the book itself kind of very literary bizarro slash like bizarro parody that really involves um a plan you know this like post-gendered world on mars where everyone is one everyone has evolved to this like post-human post-gender position where they're just covered in uh slits and shafts and so like you know, like everyone's just kind of getting fucked all the time as they were. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's wild. And frankly, I'll probably be hugely censored and blacklisted by everybody for publishing it. But it's, it's beautiful. And actually, like the, um, there's a lot of like deep metaphor 
clearly going on with uh you know with just kind of our world today and our exploration of some of these issues and like this attempt to like really apply the spectrum to how we think about uh how we think about gender and identity and like our position with respect to like intimacy so it's like but it like the thing is cuckoo as hell and a lot of people i think are going to be really put off by it and we're just going to go for it anyway we shall see how that goes well when you break it down i would say most literature that's ever been written has a basis in slits and shafts like that's just (laughs) that's generally what you're reading the book for not in such terms but yeah Story of the ages. Western literature was born on it. <laughs> oh, another one. I uh, can't get off the submission stuff because I've seen there was a big rise. I want to say around 2016 to 2018 in diversity submissions, almost being separate from just regular submissions. Uh, magazines break it down in different ways. Now it's like BIPOC stuff. So if you're, you know, black, indigenous, anything like that, you generally might not have to pay a fee if it's a fee-based one you get responses earlier different things i've also seen some cool ones where if you were like in prison or something and you're struggling and you don't have the funds like if you email the publisher they you won't have to pay the submission fee like you just let them know it's like hey i'm hard up and i'm sure that even if you weren't in prison or just got out of prison you could probably still email them like hey i'm having trouble and they maybe you know, accept your work Cause a lot of editors are actually really cool that at least the ones i've talked to but uh like have you established any kind of diversity guidelines that were specific to what you're looking for or is it just you know first come first serve Do you have any you know how does that go i don't have any diversity guidelines per se you know we are very much anti-racist we are very much uh inclusive um we try to you know, make sure again, like not always with success because sometimes submissions is just me reading stuff and getting really excited and offering people publishing contracts. <laughs> like, so I don't do like a lot of like deep diversity thinking, although I very much appreciate and want to be part of helping those stories that have been underrepresented get told, um, especially in this space, because there, I mean, there's a lot of like really cool black sci-fi, really cool, like, uh, Afro punk and queer punk stuff. Like there, there is really cool underground movement stuff burbling, but I one don't want to be a gatekeeper of that, and two don't want to be like the, the you know the like mostly straight white woman saying like mm-hmm. like you know like being the arbiter of, of like what passes for my press. Like you know like I definitely I think that um I, you know I have a couple of titles coming out and then um for about a year the calendar is all uh, women and non-binary um folks and that again like that just happened like that wasn't because i was going to be like year of woman it just happened because when i was going through that reading cycle the stuff that excited me that got dropped in the calendar all just happened to be uh, written by those folks i think that if i got better if i were able to hire readers if i were able to like have an editor sit down and like look at an actor to a publishing calendar and make more sophisticated recommendations about where it will go on that calendar, you know, we would probably like be a little more rigorous in how we codified those things. But I also, there's a part of me that like, that likes that I don't make those compromises, that it's just like, well, here's what Mia, here's what Mia was really into this year. Like clearly she was having a big dystopian year or like clearly like she, she was having marriage problems because look at all this queer shit she's publishing all the time. <laughs> I, you know, I think that that's, um, 
I think that that's exciting in some in some ways, but I also feel like as the press becomes bigger than just me, I need to get my act together and class it up a little bit. So if we ever actually make money and are able to hire those people, we, we would definitely go there. We do have, I, I, I believe the language directly on the homepage says, like, if you want one of these books and cannot afford it, get you a book. Um, and I think that that's kind of where I've left it with respect to with respect to that stuff, right? Like if you, for whatever reason, cannot afford to give me 20 bucks, I don't want that to be the barrier between you accessing that literature. That's awesome. I like that because yeah. a lot of people, uh, what turns them off on just reading new works that they normally wouldn't give a chance is the price tag. Yeah. And often a lot of smaller publishers have to charge a little more because they don't, you know, they don't have the big, oh, I could just print 10,000 copies of this so I get a discount. Like they just have small print runs. That's uh, right. The they're barely there. And frankly, like I'm grateful that not too many people have taken me up on that offer because mm. the margin barely there but but it's but it's really important to me that that you know that like that this stuff is accessible and that that's not the barrier to entry well like going back to the diversity stuff i was always under the uh at least under the opinion that the work usually will stand on its own you know so no matter who is submitting it if the work's good enough it's that's what really matters and then we already talked about giving voice to the people who you know not you don't say the voiceless but they're not they don't get the same chances. I th- I do think that's important. Um, I've always appreciated publications that do blind readings where they don't want to know who is submitting before they read so they don't have any kind of bias going into it. But then that also is tricky because a lot of people who are submitting, well, it's tough now because I don't think there's as many white male writers as there used to be because I just I don't personally know too many writers. But then again, a lot of the ones I know are white males. Yeah. So let's just for shits and giggles say most of the people that are submitting to places are white people and they are obviously had their voice overexposed for how long. So when you get into blind submissions, then I don't know. It's tough because if the work just speaks for itself, but if there's like two percent of BIPOC people and the 98 percent of submissions are just random white people chances are statistically you're just going to publish a bunch of whiteys so I don't know how that works either but I guess it's like a catch-22 it's like you want to not judge anything but the work but then you also want to give voice to people that don't you know you know give them not a helping hand but just be like hey we want to read more of your work we've had enough of this we want to try something different but that's right and uh, you know I think um I'm I'm very sensitive to that. I very much want to like champion the work of like cool people whose voices have not otherwise found a market. But what I'm really trying to do is build community and that community reflects like where you know, like I'm sitting here in the South Bronx and it's it's pretty diverse and we have a pretty you know, like we have a really diverse friend group and they're diverse across lots of different levels. And that's you know what I'm trying to do. Like I don't want to do any like tokenistic stuff and nor do I want to poach anybody from working with an awesome black owned publisher, for example, or like a really cool indigenous indie press out of Alaska, like by all means, like go to those people if that's like the community that you're a part of. But I, I, you know, my goal is to build something that is like as broad and deep and, you know, like tells as, as big of a variety of stories in as big of a variety of ways as I, as, you know, as I possibly can um, within you know the reality of me being like one middle-aged woman sitting in my car in the South <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, since we're going on an hour, I'll, I'll touch on the last topic and then we can wrap up here because I could tell it just from the light on the camera, it's getting darker where you yeah. are. So, you know, again, under the <laughs> Brooklyn Bridge, you don't yeah. know what could go on. Um, <laughs> I just see, I see graffiti directly behind you. Yeah. So it does look like you're under the Brooklyn <laughs> Bridge. Like, 
but anyway, uh, when it comes, because I'm, this is one thing I'm always curious on, and I haven't got a straight answer, because when I was doing uh, submission, like reading submissions, I wasn't overly concerned with cover letters, as long as, you know, they gave the basis of what were in my guidelines. So it's like, hey, tell me your word count, a brief synopsis of the story, your short bio in case we do publish you, because that just shortens everything and having, you know, less emails. But... I know a lot of places are very strict, but then I always get the feeling too, where it's almost like when you apply for a job and it's like, we need your resume and cover letter. And it's like, yeah. I, the application has all this information. Why do I have to keep doing yeah. this? Like, I don't need all this information. Stop it. But I feel like a lot of people worry that they're going to get their work rejected because their their cover letter isn't good enough. How important, at least for your publication, is the cover letter? Do you focus on it or is it just a, you know kind of a neat way to like get a little feel of the writer? I, I, you know, like you are not applying for a job. I don't care about your like multitasking abilities. <laughs> so like the cover letter to me doesn't, doesn't mean that very much. The only time I actually give a shit, the only time that I actually will pay attention in a cover letter is if someone comes to me either because they've read another book of mine that they think really, you know, like captures the flow of what they're trying to do that will always get my attention or if someone comes via recommendation so if someone is a friend of a writer that i know or if someone was rejected and recommended by another press uh that i respect like if it comes like from a place of respect and they're clearly trying to speak to me yet and whiskey tit as an entity and not just like trying to sell themselves right so like many of those cover letters are pretty we wrote some of them that do involve like lots of time spent looking at it and answering to our submissions guidelines and i respect that but i don't spend it like i want to read your book i don't want to read your cover letter right like so um so the cover letter sometimes will get my attention if it includes those things um but really like let's just let, like let's just cut to it or if you have like an awesome super high concept 10 word pitch right like if you like i have a couple of writers who are just really good at that at pitching many writers don't know how to pitch themselves but a couple do and when they really do like you, you might as well go for it i this is a little bit of a disclosure here i must admit i've been name dropping in my recent submissions and it's helping yeah. yeah like if i just know somebody or somebody recommended me or if a story that was rejected by a publication sent me a good personal rejection where they're like they liked it they just didn't publish it I'm just dropping their name now. And it seems to help. Like people are like, oh, cool. This guy yeah. doesn't, he's not submitting dog shit. So I was like, yay. <laughs> I'm honestly, I honestly think that like, if, you know, if you name drop to me and it's like, because, and you're dropping the names of people that I like and whose opinions I respect, I am honestly just more inclined to, to have a quick look at what you've got. Right. Like it's just one way of, um, of, of setting yourself aside, um, which is not to say you should just like randomly name drop and hope for the best, because I do often follow up with those people to make sure that I'm not dealing with total dipshits. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I mean, it, it's, it certainly helps. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say that because like many people don't have access to my Rolo decks or whatever, but um, certainly if you do, or like I said, if you've actually like read some of our work and found that like, that's what inspired you to submit to this press, then like, by all means, I would like to hear that because that to me says something. All right. One quick moral dilemma. I'm going to throw your way. Nicholas Shit. Sparks submits the shittiest romance story ever written to Whiskey Tit but it's a guaranteed bestseller and everyone is going to pay attention to it. Do you publish it? Oh man. I mean, I, I, I feel like I've heard this before. Maybe it was on your podcast last week, but I, I, so I think that we're all pretty, writers are pretty smart. 
And if we really wanted to write the book that would be on the next Oprah's book club list, we would have gone that path, right? Like if we wanted to write bestsellers, we know what those formulas are. We know how to do that. You know, like I would love for one of my weirdo books to suddenly be on the New York Times list because every big, because, but not because like I chose to publish something that was formulaic, but because readers suddenly opened their eyes to the possibilities of some of the literature that I've chosen to produce. So uh, easy answer is no, I wouldn't sell out that way on Whiskey Tit, although I do have certain skills to pay the bills and there's no saying that I couldn't just spin up like a goofy name and slap an ISBN on it and suddenly have Whiskey Todd and just publish the show <laughs> and know what to go until I'm retired and writing to you all from the Maldives or whatever. Um, but that's a story for another day. If you have that book, let me know and we'll work out a deal. I'll give you a 50-50 cut. I recommend Tequila Tatas, but that's just me. <laughs> okay. Um, so <laughs> that'd be your southern branch yeah so this is where we'll open the floor to you to promote anything you want like i said tarina sent me a few book things i don't know if you just know them off of hand but anything that's uh, coming out or is already out that people should check if you have any other fancy podcast interviews you're going to be doing with such successful guys as us or you know just anything this is your opportunity to do that you guys are charming as hell we should just have our own little podcast where we just sit <laughs> Um, I I love all of my children equally, so I'm going to stick only. Uh, so I, I want to be selective in talking about who has titles coming uh, very very soon. So we have Tobias Carroll, um, who has a very short novel called In the Sight, that is loosely based on uh, the music from a specific Destroyer album, which was called This Night. It's a 2002 album. It's very short, really concise, and it's like a road. It's a road novel so it's like very melodic super musical it also involves like diy brain manipulation and some other weird like science hijinks um it's very cool and super uh, beautiful and fluid in its language uh thomas kendall is a writer from the uk i've published one of his books the second is called how i killed the universal man which is like uh it's, it's kind of hard to describe other than being like a very deep insight into a mind that allows itself to embrace how fucked up it is. Um, it involves kind of also like video game techno, uh, techno noir. It's very literary, very English, very close to my heart. Um, I love it. I love him. Anna Dixon James has this amazing collection of interconnected short stories that are all kind of about women and women rising up and re being resilient, except they are not done with a heavy hand at all. Uh, like these stories express themselves by way of like a sentient woman zombie running around and realizing that like the brains of smarter people taste better. Um, so it's like this kind of stuff when you when you deal with like how to like really access women finding and empowering themselves. They're hilarious and like stunningly beautiful. Tarina's book you mentioned, uh, I, so that uh, I mentioned earlier, it's called Tell Me What You See, and it's this experimental, like each story plays with a different experimental form. It's really like, stunning. Again, like if you are like living in America and have any kind of teeth grinding agita about where we are and how we got here, you should check that book out. And uh, let me make sure I'm not forgetting. No, I'm forgetting someone's going to be pissed off. Oh, uh, dropping out by Neve Burns. Neve is uh, Irish by way of Canada, and they uh, have written this amazing kind of like rock bottom uh, love story, which is incredible. Oh, and Madstone by K. Hank Jost is also coming out. Madstone is um, 
kind of explores the life of six uh, museum curators as they're kind of falling apart and losing their mind. Um, it's very bleak. Uh, it's, you know, it's very melancholy. He's also a musician. So like having, I love musician writers because they just have a way of like imbuing the music of like, of lyricism into their writing. So that's a lot. I think the most important question right now is where can our listeners find these books? You can find our books wherever books are sold. If you order directly from the publisher at whiskeytip.com, we, our margins are better, right? Because like, I'm not, I'm not giving 50% or 30% to another, you know, to everybody in the middle. Uh, but you can certainly buy them. Uncle Jeff will drone ship it directly to your house and make a couple of crackers if you buy from him. Some of our titles are eBooks and some of them are audiobooks, but we haven't gotten there with all of them yet. So if those are the ways you prefer to access your books, try and find them and if you can't find, like if the book you love is not yet available in an ebook let me know i try to like by request make that kind of work happen uh, but certainly you can find our books just about anywhere awesome well we appreciate you coming on and risking getting shivved under the brooklyn bridge for us because mm -hmm. not many people are willing to do that it's <laughs> an exciting life i'll tell you um thank you both you got this is a delightful show that you've got going on and i hope you um sell it to spotify for 10 million dollars oh. and return to, uh, you know, to, to publish bestsellers under Tequila Tatas. Well, we've been in discussion, and the Tequila Tatas yes. has been on my mind for some time, so that is possible. Spencer's OnlyFans is really blowing up too lately, so you know, this week he's the Lancaster linguist. So, what what are you doing with the? Are you just? It's all that SMAR stuff, like ASMR. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. I'll give you five bucks. <laughs> um, you can follow us at DPW Podcast on most social media platforms. Do I have to keep mentioning everyone because I'm sick of doing that? Uh, you can check us out on those. You just Google us because now yeah. like, I googled us the other day and we were on a bunch of stuff. So are you self Googler? I'm a Google. I Google myself all the time. Google yourself all the time. You never know. You never right. know. <laughs> that could be trouble thank you so much fellas this has been a real treat yeah thank, thank you, you for coming too. on and we will uh have to check out some of those books you mentioned because they actually do sound pretty cool we might have to do a review on some of them yeah i want to check out trina's book too just because she's so nice to me but also just because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds cool yeah they are all brilliant i love them all equally uh you should buy them all that would be the, the best thing to do is just buy them all <laughs> Have a great night. I can't wait to uh, get on all of your social stuff, in, except for Spencer's OnlyFans, perhaps. Um, <laughs> all right, fellas. Have a great night. All right. All right. And this episode will be out next Tuesday, so check okay. out for that. All right. Perfect. Talk to you soon. Right. See ya. Bye. Well, that was a fun conversation, folks. We thank you for listening, and we will check you out next week. And by the way, we also have a bunch more. Uh, not a bunch more. We have more guests coming, so apparently we're popular all of a sudden. Everyone's coming. Whoa, whoa, maybe. I am. <laughs> <laughs>